Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You are listening to the Rethinking Faith podcast. I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and I'm glad that you're here. I'm a former pastor turned brewer with a deep love of theology and philosophy. While I don't always wear the label comfortably, Christianity seems to be baked into who I am. I've found a home within the world of process relational thinking and have made close friends with the mystics. So whether you're a devout believer, a questioning skeptic, a bold atheist, or simply someone trying to figure out what it means to be human, you belong here. Thank you for joining me and taking the risk of entering into the sacred space. And thank you for reminding me that we aren't alone on this journey. Let us imagine a better way to be human together. Shall we begin? All right, friends, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and joining me today for the very first time is a new friend, Kazi Adi Shakti. Kazi, what is going on? <laughs> Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me here, giving me a voice. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome. Um, I was excited. I think I first kind of came across yourself and your work through um Jared Morningstar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think J- yeah, I'd good seen friend, Jared good guy. Yeah. <laughs> so I saw Jared share some things. Um and I was like, "Oh, this is really interesting." And so I was excited to kind of um get the opportunity to to chat and um specifically talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is like process Buddhism, uh mm-hmm. which is a lot of fun, but maybe before we get there would you be willing to just like share a little bit about yourself uh, for our listeners who maybe haven't met you through Jared Morningstar? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Where do I start? I guess. Um, um, so my accent sounds like, you know, I've lived up, grown up in the States for a while, which I have, um, but I actually was born in uh, Bangladesh. Um, and if you don't know where that is, it's a small little country um, sort of hugged by India. And um, I mean, I came to the States when I was three, so it's almost like I um, was basically born here. But I like to think that my time there and such a, you know, impressionable time when I was young, um, you know, left a mark on me. And um, I grew up in the Bronx in New York City. Um, and I guess in general, I consider myself a creative first and foremost. Um, I did art my whole life and that's what I ended up going to school for. And that's what I work as right now. Um, Worked in a lot of different mediums, but predominantly right now in this current phase of my life, I'm a 3D artist, so do a lot of digital stuff. And um, and yeah, and I kind of see that um, a lot of the 
theory and philosophy work I do is definitely like part of my creative practice in a way. So, um, yeah. Sweet. Well, ha- so has um, Buddhism then, has that been something mm-hmm. that you always uh, grew up with? Like, has that always been part of your story or like what, what is your relationship been with? Uh, yeah. Buddhism? So um, I grew up Muslim. Um, my, um, parents come from a Muslim background. Um, most pretty much, um, I think I don't want to give a number, but a majority of people in Bangladesh are uh, Muslim, um, Sunni Muslim. And, um, there was a brief time when, you know, I kind of went along with what I was being taught. I, you know, I believed in Allah and, um, you know, I went to, um, school or, uh, an extracurricular program for, you know, uh, learning Arabic to read the Quran and stuff like that. Um, but uh, once I sort of, uh, once I hit puberty and um, it became very apparent that I was uh, queer, um, I faced a lot of uh, difficulty in my family um, for for that. And they would weaponize um, in, you know, Islam and religion against my queerness. And um, that left a really big that left a really bad mark on on religion for me. And so I went through a kind of like an angry atheist phase, sort of rebelling against what my parents taught me and my parents' values and stuff like that. But um, for a lot of different reasons, um, that kind of exhausted itself pretty quickly. Um, and I was sort of soul-seeking for something, something better, something um, greater. But I couldn't really... Um, you know, go back, return to my parents' faith. Because even though they, um, you know, I recognize at some point that they were weaponizing it against me and not necessarily being true to their own faith when doing that, um, I couldn't really make sense, heads or tails of a, you know, um, kind of monotheistic uh, God and, and an approach to religion based on that. Um, and I started, uh, when I went to college, I started exploring philosophy, um I was uh, snow going around it. A, a couple of uh, initial psychedelic experiences definitely expanded my mind to the range of human experience and really um, wondering beyond, you know, like um, what I thought I was aware of and um, what I thought the limits of, you know, reality were. And so I did a lot of exploring through philosophy. And eventually I took a class on Eastern religions and um, we got a little bit of, um, Buddhism, a little bit of um, Hinduism, and the various, you know, um, sub-schools uh, that go under the umbrella of Hinduism, some Taoism and stuff like that. And um, one thing led to another, and I just got deeper into my study of Buddhism, and um, I fell in love with it. And, um, you know, eventually, with my study, I realized that this is not just, you know, another one of these philosophical systems that I was reading about, but an actual practical way of life that I had to, if I really wanted to actualize what was being said, what was being promised by um, this tradition, I would have to put it into practice. And so um, over, it was, it was some, some time of finding like instructors and teachers and finally finding a, a lineage to, um, get transmission from uh 
But yeah, that's how I sort of came to Buddhism. There's a lot of it I left out, but um, that's sort of the general gist of it. So I was not born into it, but I found my way to it. And uh, in a weird way or interesting way, um, I kind of also see it as a way of reclaiming my heritage in a way. Um, not saying that, you know, Islam is not part of my heritage. I, you know, actually Buddhism has... Um, perhaps in, from a, some some perspective in an ironic way has actually um, made me appreciate um, my um, original upbringing as a Muslim a lot more and just appreciating all religions in general. Um, but uh, I don't know where I was going with that. But yeah. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for sharing. It's it's interesting because for me, so I um, I don't know much about Buddhism in the sense that I haven't studied it from like a deep philosophical perspective, anything like that. Um, but I did find my first encounter really with uh, Buddhism came at a time for me um, when I was experiencing, you know, what people are called deconstruction um, kind of thing from, I come from like a Christian background. Um, mm -hmm. I used to be a pastor. Um, I don't oh. do that anymore. Um and Buddhism is actually something that helped me through that kind of, um, I don't know, like a time of lots of questions. And uh, specifically the Zen tradition uh, with somebody like Thich Nhat Hanh mm -hmm. um, and then other, I guess, like Western practitioners, um, like someone like Tara Brock um, or Jack Cornfield, these kind of things, you know, mm -hmm. the way... Uh, I've heard you talk about Buddhism being appropriated a little bit in the West. Uh, and it seems like yeah, that's <laughs> complicated, but yeah, a little bit of yeah. that, a little bit yeah. of genuineness, of course. Right. Right. Um, so it's kind of been my experience uh, with it, but it's something that has really stuck with me. And I, I love how you talked about it as a practice and like a way of being in the world. And that's kind of the, the bit for me that has stuck around is because mm -hmm instead of it just being like these kind of abstract ideas, when I actually tried to apply it, um, I was like, whoa, nice. I <laughs> This is a great way of being in the world. So it's kind of my um, limited connection and understanding of, of Buddhism, just for some context for you. Um, yeah, but so I guess then I'm curious, when when you started, like, I guess your philosophical, like reading philosophical stuff, how far into that journey did you come across uh, Whitehead? Yeah, yeah. so um, it's really interesting. And I don't remember all the little um, steps that got me to Whitehead. But um, I, I will say there is something about uh, the psychedelic experience that lends itself towards that kind of um, uh, you know, process, relational way of thinking about things. Um, and um, I think it was actually, so I did a little bit of like, you know, reading of like Plato and like Descartes and stuff like that. Um, you know, I was hearing about this stuff called postmodernism. And so I was like trying to read a little bit of Deleuze and I was like, I have no idea what I'm reading kind of thing. Um, but then I was also... Um, Oh, okay, now it's kind of coming back to me. So I also um, learned about object-oriented ontology um, and, you know, the speculative realist sort of um, program um, in school because it was very popular in the art world. Um, 
and I don't think I um, explicitly mentioned I went to went to college for art, and um, it was very um, popular in the art world. So it was kind of um, um, you know all the all the cool kids knew what Triple um, O was, and and I wanted to sort of figure out what that was as well. And then I started learning about speculative realism in general. And I think at some point, I can't remember exactly how, but my interest in psychedelics and the sort of um, opening to the sense that everything is dynamic and in flux and in process and sort of not really capturable in terms of our fixed concepts, and also this interest in a speculative realism. And also this sort of, uh, you know, growing sort of, I guess, spiritual urge in me that I, I wanted to um, feel a sense of greater connection with the world. I, I stumbled upon this idea of panpsychism, and um, that was really uh, sort of attractive to me. And then I found the work of uh, Matthew Siegel uh um, and his and his blog footnotes to Plato and his um, YouTube channel, and that's I think where I really, um, yeah, his new book, Crossing the Threshold. I haven't gone to that, but I'm excited um, to get to it eventually. Um, but yeah, I mean, I still follow his work. Um, great um, scholar, gay guy. Um, yeah, it was through his work that I um, found out about Whitehead. And I also found the work of uh, Stephen Shaviro, probably through. Um, uh, Matt and uh, read his book Universe of Things, and uh, it really felt like you know Whitehead was um, my guy in terms of uh, Western philosophy. So that's how I sort of came to it. And um, I guess um, one of the things as well that attracted me about Whitehead, but also what attracted me about Buddhism in different in a in a different but similar way, is this. Uh, sense of wanting to find balance, um, uh, a balance between opposing tendencies. Um, uh, I should also state out, um, state that um, my sun sign is Libra. So there's this sort of uh, desire or yearning for balance or even a, not even a static balance, but a dynamic balance between opposing um, or, you know, just not even opposing, but, you know, between polarities that I find myself within, it has always been like a part of me, um, especially as someone who is an immigrant from South Asia, living in the West, but also growing up queer and having to almost feel like I was always having to decide between um, my family's traditional uh, Asian way of life versus um what I, you know, the more liberal individualistic tendencies of the West that I was growing up in. And I could see the pros and cons of both and never really knowing where I could fit in. And I think, um, so I'm, I'm always thinking and feeling um, this um, this urge to find some kind of resolution or, or even peace with these sort of um, opposing tensions. And um, as I was studying philosophy, um, I also felt, you know, when I encountered this, you know, traditional dichotomy between materialism and idealism um, or physicalism and idealism and also seeing, you know, I can see why one would emphasize one over the other and, and I can see both camps of never really finding a satisfaction in either of them. And so both Whitehead and the Buddhist tradition have, um, uh, you know, really, uh, quenched my thirst in a way for seeking a, a way of thinking and being that was beyond dualities but um 
but also at the same time make me want more and more, which is why I go increasingly deeper into these um, uh, two great traditions of uh, process in Buddhism. Yeah, thank you. I um, It's funny because uh, like, I guess the way that I got to Whitehead um, was like a bit different. I basically was like asking questions of theodicy, right? Mm. And um, that was like a big one for me um, in like deconstruction. And so I found um, open and relational thinking through someone like Tom Ward um, oh, right. was kind of my gateway drug. And then Whitehead kind of came later once I recognized like, oh, there was like a person <laughs> that, you know, this kind of uh, started to come from. And so I, it's only been more recently within the past, maybe like two years or so that I've actually been trying to have a go at actually reading like philosophy and uh, mm. outside like theology was, I guess, my first love, so to speak. Um, and so it's been interesting uh, kind of, um, reading people like Whitehead, but then also, uh, finding people like yourself who are taking these kind of big ideas and, um, applying them in, in really fun and, and interesting ways. Uh, and so, yeah, that it's, um, I don't know, it's curious to me, but I wonder too, if you've seen any kind of connection, like in Whitehead and also, your work as like an artist because you know mm, whitehead's mm -hmm, big on mm -hmm. like beauty and you know you mentioned like right. balance and contrast and these kind of things yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like how is that has that kind of like influenced your work as an artist at all i would like to think so um i mean now so definitely um and when i was first encountering him uh, you know um i mostly read about him through people like uh, Matt and uh, Stephen Shaviro. Um, but, you know, uh, I did try reading process in reality and, and could barely get through the first uh, chapter and, you know, early in my philosophical studies. So I, I was building my way, way, to, way to him. Um, I wish I had a better grasp of him while I was at school because it would have definitely helped me a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I super appreciate Whitehead um, as a as an artist, as a creative. Um, uh, first and foremost, um, with the immense uh, respect he has towards uh, the primacy of a of aesthetics of aesthesis as sort of the the alpha and omega of philosophy you know the it's like um experiences where we start from but it's also where we return to with our philosophy and um that was really attractive to me as someone who was both um a practicing artist but also you know really interested in philosophy um and and it definitely felt and what's beautiful about whitehead for me is that he is able to be uh, so abstract, so systematic um, with his philosophizing. But at the same time, there's always this sense of, you know, always wanting to come back down to the ground um, uh, with his thinking. And um, and that uh, there and there was something open about his way of thinking that always uh, forced us to come back down in reality. And, and I really appreciated that. And um, 
and definitely um, this idea of of contrast and how and and the productive nature of contrast is definitely something that is really, I think, important for for artists because sometimes we get sort of caught up in our own concepts about what we're doing, and um, and sort of we sort of end up becoming obstacles for ourselves, um, especially especially if we have really fixed aesthetic uh, preferences. Um, but this idea of playing with contrast, with difference and in a productive way has definitely helped me a lot as an artist, for sure. Cool. That, yeah, I just, I don't know. I thought that was a, kind of an interesting um, spin on things. I uh, I technically have an art degree. My degree's in digital media graphic design. I fell oh, cool. into it by accident <laughs> and definitely uh, was not as... Uh, contemplative with the kind of things that I made <laughs> um but yeah now it's uh I don't know I, I kind of wish that I could redo um I don't know with just some of the things that I know now do you ever wish that you could just like go back to when you were like I don't know a little bit younger <laughs> with some of the information you know now uh and I don't know Anyway, I'm chasing. Oh, for sure. I mean, rabbits like, in my head. Um, like I had, like I had <laughs> said, I um, I wish I understood why I had a little bit earlier while I was in, still in school because um, when I was talking about how you know artists sometimes we can get fixated on our concepts and our aesthetic preferences. I mean, I was doing that a lot, and it really didn't. Um, uh, it wasn't so great for me, um, you know, developing as an artist, but in a weird way, you know, we don't have to get down to this rabbit hole, but there's parts of the art world that almost in a weird way um, sort of uh, push that way of working, um, you know, when you're building an identity and a brand that that's like identifiable. Um, it's, it, it can definitely be a place where you you lose the ab ability to have the you know, creative freedom and um, you get really, uh, siloed into a particular way of working and a particular way of making um uh and yeah and i feel like whitehead would have freed me a little bit more had i you know got to understanding him but also um that negative experience was also great because now i know what not to do so and uh, i find uh, great value in 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 failing in that way and and um learning from that i mean i wouldn't say my time as an artist was in art school was a complete failure um but uh towards the end i i definitely was a bit more playful and um actually did get um have a lot more work that i was satisfied with um but yeah sometimes i do wish that um, things were a little bit different back then, but now I can do that. So, yeah, absolutely. Now there's no time like the present, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So with all that in mind, I guess I'm curious to know, uh, how, so hmm, I'm trying to think how to phrase this question when it comes to process in Buddhism, um, what, I don't know, I guess perhaps what aspects of process thinking did you find um, or do you find rather maybe helpful um, in, you know, uh, cooperation or, or playing with or in partnering with um, your Buddhism? Like where mm -hmm. where do you see the two kind of um, enhancing one another? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, in a way, I feel like... Um, they they're kind of self-sufficient 
um, independently of each other. Um, I mean, of course they, and it's funny, I say that, but at the same time, both tradition are always also um, reflexively self-aware of their own, you know, limitations. Um, but for that reason, they're all, they're also kind of self-sufficient um, because of that. Um, they're similarly open um, about the, the limits of their own concepts and terminology. Um, but um, at the same time, um, there, I do see a kind of, even though both systems, uh, both approaches, you know, emphasize process over stasis, you know, becoming over being, um, and the inability of our philosophical concepts, no matter how complex, to really grasp reality as it is in lived experience, um, they have deep resonances in that sense. Um, they do diverge in an interesting in interesting ways, which I think are ultimately complementary and not opposed. Um, but they are a contrast to you know to bring that term again. And um, for me personally, I think process philosophy, particularly of the Whiteheadian kind, but I'm also very um, you know exploring other um, process thinkers as well, like the uh, um, like Deleuze um, and uh, Nicholas Rescher. Um, and uh, others. Um, what I find in process philosophy um, is this more positive approach in wanting to reconstruct what the process of experience is and reality is so that we have greater clarity about, you know, how the world functions um, and um, in, in those terms. With Buddhism, there's more of an emphasis on the fact that we have this habitual tendency to actually want to fix reality into stable forms that we grasp onto in in this in this desperate pursuit of finding certainty in an uncertain world and in having some kind of ground where there is actually a, a deep groundlessness and um so Buddhism, I find Buddhism tends to be very much about um, a, a deconstructive approach, um, even when it uh, has constructive elements. And um, so, you know, so Whitehead's uh, philosophy is speculative. Um, it's it's reconstructive, as I've said, whereas Buddhists tend to be a little bit more skeptical of, of speculation and, um, you know, what we call prapancha, conceptual proliferation. Um, which can cause us to be stuck in a thicket of views that we sort of trap ourselves within. And so there's more of an emphasis on deconstructing our assumptions and letting go of these things that are um, ultimately harming us, um, even if we don't recognize it in the moment. But in, in, in spite of their differences, I find that they both are tending towards the same thing. And by the same thing, I don't mean, you know, the same view about things or the same, you know, philosophical framework or anything like that. But they both just want us to come back to the world with fresh eyes and to sort of really see it for what it is, independent of of what we want it to be in our in our habitual assumptions um, about what we think it is. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I see them resonating and um, diverging, but in a complementary way, um, ultimately. Mm, yeah, I, 
I think the the fact that they resonate and then diverge but still complement each other is a, still like a very Buddhist or process way of looking at the whole thing anyway. <laughs> Which is yeah, it's important for me when I think them together that I don't bring a kind of extraneous sort of third party perspective because mm. if I do, then that whatever that is has to be accounted for. And mm. what I really love is that when we bring them together, they have resources within each other that can actually make that sort of creative synthesis happen. Um, and it's sort of purely imminent in that way. Um, and uh, yeah, and so whenever I kind of work um, on, you know, thinking process and Buddhism together, in a in this strange um, sort of circuitous way, in order to do in order to think process and Buddhism together, you kind of already have to think in a process Buddhist way to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, that's funny to me, and I really kind of like live into it. Um, but I think the I just lost my train of thought. Um, forgive me, but the um. Hmm. Damn it, Joshua. This is why ADHD is a bad thing. And I've been <laughs> locked in a room by myself all day today. So you're literally the first person I've got to talk to. Oh. Um, <laughs> but um process Buddhism. Uh they go together, convergent. Da, da, da. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I'll just I'll throw t try to tie into something you were saying. The kind of one of the things that um Buddhism helped me with a lot, especially within the kind of uh, deconstruction um, side of things that I was going through personally in my own like faith life was the kind of um, letting go of ideas or holding things more loosely, not grasping and clinging. And I think that's also part of why I enjoy process thinking as well, because it does have that more speculative nature, like you were, you were saying, um, and I have found uh, like that resonance with them, as you've already pointed out. But that specifically for me, what was super helpful. Um, also, because the one of the things that was helpful for me was I kind of found some friends amongst like the mystics, um, not mm -hmm. just Christian mystics, but in in general. Um, and I found a lot of resonance in what um, I read from mystics what I experienced in my own like contemplative type practice. Um, and then also uh, with what I was reading and in engaging lived experience with um, some of the Buddhist teachers. And then also this process stuff all seemed to just like play nicely together. And so then I just feel like I get, you know, pulled in various directions and try to synthesize them or, or bring them together or something. Um, but that's kind of been, I guess, in my, my own experience. Um, as well yeah so cool yeah i like that <laughs> it's okay um yeah i, I think uh, you know a lot of um what's really interesting is that well to some extent i've had a um a little bit more pushback from buddhists from from my um sort of process buddhism um work but for the most part i find that you know i have friends from both camps or you know whatever you can say um both um sort of uh you know, tendencies and um, 
there's already there's already this natural resonance between the two and i mean of course the the the, the history of process and um buddhist dialogue while not very long uh, has been you know present for for at least uh, a couple of decades now especially thanks to the work of um you know such eminaries as uh uh, John Cobb. Um, and so the fact that they have come together is no surprise to me. And when I started getting interested in them, I definitely have, um, you know, um, noticed that like, oh, of course, I'm not the first one to to bring these two together at all. There is, um, you know, uh, you know, a, a line of, you know, in a way, a lineage of, of people already thinking the same things. Um, so yeah, I and so I love that you know naturally and spontaneously that these resonances are um, being experienced by you in your own life as well, um, and which which gives me a lot of um, confidence, I think, in in the in the uh, viability of a, of a systematic uh, creative synthesis of the two, um, because like I said, I don't think. I don't think either one are is really missing anything that the other needs to fill a void in. I see it more of a kind of um, less of a codependent relationship and and more of like an autonomous partnership that um, the two can come together and really enhance each other's powers um, and uh, you know do so much more good for the world because um, they both have incredibly. Uh, compassionate orientations, um, you know, process thinkers who have been incredibly, you know, ecologically oriented, and so have Buddhists. Um, but even before the ecological crisis, um, um, you know, was um, a thing that we've been dealing with, you know, for you know over two thousand years. The the sort of the aspiration to 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 do, you know, the good work for the sake of all beings has been, you know at the heart of Buddhism since the beginning. Um, and so and a, a big sort of motivation for me is that, well, um, if either of these traditions have such, you know, grand motivations to basically, you know, do the project of salvation in a way through embodied work, um, why not come together and do it together and, you know, and really um, fulfill each other's mission, which in a way is kind of the same mission even if expressed in different language. Yeah, though I love the way you talk about this like mutual partnership. It it reminds me of kind of like uh some of the language that I've picked up on from people who write about like a deep religious pluralism. Mm -hmm. Um one that's you know, it comes to the table in a way that fully recognizes uh the beauty and inherent worth of each tradition. And isn't trying to do it in a way where it's like, oh, I'm a Christian talking to my Buddhist friend and secretly, you know, my Buddhist friend really worships Jesus. They just don't know it kind of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, but this yeah, yeah. actual genuine religious pluralism where the two traditions come together in such a way that they can um, learn from one another, um, have mutual transformation. There's kind of this like air of humility about it. Um, and so that kind of. I, I don't know. I think that that um, tone and how you're speaking is is really helpful, um, and I think attractive to the the kind of work that you're doing. Um, mm. But I would I'd be curious what kind of like so when you get pushback from because you had mentioned you get some pushback from um, some mm. of your Buddhist friends, what kind of pushback uh, tends to get leveled uh, towards this kind of adventure and ideas? <laughs> 
Yeah, um, I think, um, and I think this this is, is a sort of a, a symptom of um, a certain kind of approaching Buddhist Buddhist um, Buddhism's sort of deconstructive approach that sort of, um, in a way, uh, rehabituates people um, again <laughs> in in a, in a different problematic way. Um, which is that people get really stuck on this sort of deconstructive approach and then have a kind of almost axiomatic skepticism towards any kind of speculative thinking, um, speculative philosophizing, um, which is kind of ironic because, you know, Buddhist, the history of Buddhism, you know, is not devoid of that, um, of, you know, constructing new systems and developing, you know, even... Um, you know, a, a very refined new terminology, um, though even when it's sort of a reconstructive project, perhaps with like Yogacara phenomenology, it is still part of the overarching deconstructive project, of course. Um, but all to say, yeah, I think um, I think process people are already very much um, into collaboration and cooperation and synergizing. And so I think that's why there's more of a, openness to to um you know partnership with buddhism but then i think some buddhists might um even people even buddhists who have expressed appreciation of of my work there's always this sort of like but you know but don't, don't you know don't forget we're supposed to is so what's the aim for the freedom from proliferation not more proliferation kind of thing um but of course, sometimes when they give me a chance to actually speak, they can actually see that like, oh, okay, like, so these can be concepts that actually fulfill the function of going beyond concepts. They're not necessarily something to, to fear, you know, um, you know, in Buddhism, we all, we all, we always say, you know, we have to go beyond hope and fear, yet still I find sometimes Buddhist, uh, fear this tendency of, to speculate. I mean, I don't want to downplay at all, you know, the the, the risk with sort of um, a speculative approach that is uh, um, not really reflexively aware of the way in which thought can actually distort um, um, the the objects that it thinks about. But I think if we if we are you know sufficiently aware of that, um, then I don't see how much why it's such a risk, you know. Um, so yeah, so that's the kind of the pushback, and um, I think it makes sense because um, I think, especially uh, you know, I don't know if there's like um, I think there's some kind of term for it, but um, there's there's some some kind of like I think a Buddhist sickness that happens a little bit where you kind of turn the Buddhist antidote into its own kind of poison by like grasping onto the the Buddhist um, approach or the procedure, which ironically gets in its own way. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that can be dangerous. But like I said, you know, it's not a whole lot of pushback. Um, it, it's, I just have noticed that um, of the two, uh, I, do, I do tend to see more skepticism from the Buddhist side than the, the process side. Yeah, thank you um, again for sharing. I have one more question I want to ask you just about your own kind of, um, you know, spirituality, philosophy, et cetera. And then um, we can kind of apply it a little bit with the uh, the article that you you wrote in in the Process Perspectives uh, magazine. But I'm just curious: Do you are you? Um, and forgive me because there's going to display some of my ignorance <laughs> within the Buddhist tradition. Okay. Um, but there, if I'm correct, are there some forms of Buddhism that have um, 
something like deity, I guess. Um, and mm. then some that are are not so much, like I guess more like a secular Buddhism, if that's the right kind of phraseology or or whatever. Is that does my question make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense. Um, yeah, so um a little bit of more background about myself. So um uh, I come from a Tibetan Buddhist practice and lineage, uh, particularly in the Dzogchen tradition, which is um while not identical to, uh, very much embedded within a, a Vajrayana framework. So for people who aren't familiar, the usual categorizations or, or classifications of Buddhist uh, yanas or vehicles um, are called Hinayana, uh, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. Um, Vajrayana is, is seen as an extension of the Mahayana. Hinayana means lesser vehicle, um, and so it's very much a sort of retrospective term produced by Mahayanis, which is um, Mahayana means great vehicle. And so I don't really like that term, um, Hinayana, um, P, um, uh, referring to the early Buddhist um, traditions. Um, people have called it Nikaya Buddhism or Shravakayana, the vehicle of, of hearers. Um, sometimes I call it foundational Buddhism to point to how the Mahayana doesn't dispense with the 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 previous traditions but builds upon them. Uh, so I would say that the foundational Buddhism, particular and and sort of the living tradition right now that I think best represents foundational Buddhism, but again, don't want to make it seem like they're not self-sufficient in their own um, is a Theravada tradition, uh, mostly found in in uh, Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia um, and sort of encapsulated by the, um, in, in the Pali canon. There, um, which is the closest to the you know, sort of the early Buddhist traditions um, in scriptures, there is, um, we have more of a sort of skeptical tendency towards, um, you know, any kind of supernaturalism. Uh, well, I should take a step back. Um, any kind of uh, idea of divine providence is, is very much rejected, or if not rejected, is seen as not really uh, um, relevant to the Buddhist path of overcoming suffering and gaining true knowledge of the way things are. Um, and, um, you know, in spite of some of the more, I don't know, Western spec, uh, Western secular Buddhists who see, you know, um, uh, the the early Buddhist traditions as somehow more rationalistic and not supernaturalistic. I mean, um, in in you know, for the longest time, even now, uh, you know, such traditions live side by side. You know, uh, the folk traditions of the places that they're in, um, which is replete with you know magical thinking and and being and belief in supernatural entities and um, the possibility of siddhi or extraordinary perception um, is definitely you know accepted. But anyway, I digress. There's still an um, there's more more an emphasis on cultivating um uh discerning awareness and um eliminating the fetters that bind us to this sort of cycle of suffering and ignorance with the mahayana which is kind of this sort of like revolutionary movement that starts um um i would want to say um first and second centuries um but um uh don't quote me on that, but later after the on the early Buddhist traditions, um, 
there is more of an emphasis on uh, the the figure of the bodhisattva. So um, highly excelled beings on the path who have gained such extraordinary powers, um, and they use these powers to, um, you know, uh, liber- help liberate other sentient beings. And so one of the ways of understanding the transition from Hinayana or Shravakayana to Mahayana is this uh, expansion of the scope of concern. So there is less about achieving nirvana for myself and more about um, making sure that everyone comes on the bus with me. Um, and there, and, and there's this, um, uh, you know, this idea of like, um, deferring, you know, one's ultimate nirvana, um, to stay within the realm of, you know, of samsara to, to help other beings. And a lot of these bodhisattva figures start to take on the this sort of almost quasi-theistic function um, and become means of, uh, or if not ultimate means, provisional means of salvation on their own right. And so, um, you know, actually, it's it's no surprise to me that um, Pure Land Buddhism has often been, you know, a, a place where process thinkers find a lot of resonance um, with their their own ideas of, you know, uh, the process God. Because in Pure Land Buddhism, the main figure is the Buddha of the the West, Amitabha, who um, it is said had uh, generated his own Buddha field, his own sort of dimension, which um, is um, optimally conducive to achieving enlightenment. So a lot of Pure Land practice um, ends up being about um, living in this life to become reborn. Um, So instead of trying to, you know, escape samsara or escape the cycle of rebirth, um, getting reborn in Amitabha's Pure Land so that you have the most optimal conditions and the help of um, Amitabha to to reach your own awakening. and this sort of quasi-theistic um, um, approach gets that much more pronounced in the Vajrayana, where we actually have what's called the Ishta Devatas or Yidams, um, which are basically um, bodhisattvas who function as meditational deities who through which we actually exchange um, sort of energies and also ultimately recognize as being non-dual or indivisible with our own nature. Um, and, and lots of people have, uh, you know, their own special yidam for the whole life, um, particular relationship with um, a particular bodhisattva um, like Manjushri or Tara um, or, and there's also many different um, um, bodhisattvas um and um, not just bodhisattvas, but even other sort of figures like um, protector beings like Dharmapalas that are, um, from an outside perspective, you know, very much looks like worshiping a deity, but, um, you know, might be the the actual uh, sort of um, practical, imminent, subjective approach to these figures is, is not quite, you know, praying to a deity, but you definitely have this sort of quasi-theistic um, um, appearance, I guess, of working with deities. And so in, in my practice, um, 
which is Dzogchen, but also embedded within a Vajrayana context that I have Yidam practice. Um, and um, it, it definitely is a big part of my my own practice. Um, but then Dzogchen is really interesting because there's a way in which Dzogchen kind of returns, circles back to the, the original um, approach of sort of going beyond this sort of dependence on these like external conceptualized um uh yeah beings and um sort of return to this sense of uh or not even returning but also you know heightening what's already you know within vajrayana practice the idea that these these deities so-called yidams are not separate from your own state and so in Dzogchen, we actually, uh, we use Yidam practice um, as a supplement, but it's always to, for, for the purpose of instantly recognizing our own natural state. So the distinction between Vajrayana and Dzogchen would be in Vajrayana, you sort of depend a lot on on these visualizations um, of, of deities and their mandalas. Um, and, and for Dzogchen, um, it's, it's a much more direct approach, but it doesn't abandon um, all the methods beforehand. Um, so yeah, so that was like a, a long-winded uh, answer, but um, I think it was important to sort of give a general outline um, of sort of this transition from the early Buddhist teachings through the Mahayana and the Vajrayana and Dzogchen, um, because, uh, yeah, that's a, it's, it's a complicated question. And, and, and I don't think um, affirming theism or even affirming atheism is really a, a great approach because things are a lot more complex um, than that. And um, actually, um, you mentioned uh, the article that I wrote, um, the uh, for process perspectives, uh, the expanded version of that, which I'm still working on, and I keep telling people I'm almost done, but I'm never done, is um, a section that I didn't include because I wasn't finished with it um, is actually a precisely on this question of deity. Um, and, uh, you know, I run through the whole gamut of like classical theism and pantheism and uh, panentheism, atheism, sort of seeing how all of these approaches fit in not only in a Buddhist um, context, but also ultimately a process Buddhist um, context. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for that to be to be out when it is yeah that i'm excited too that uh because i was just so i was curious about it i remember earlier on in our conversation you talked about kind of this like a angry atheist phase i think <laughs> is the language that you used and um yeah, yeah. i know for my myself i experienced this like more than one time i think it, it you know it, it's not necessarily a one-time thing but like the, the kind of death of god moment for myself um and the kind of deity or or divine something like that that i would um claim like say like maybe it's like this <laughs> you know today is very different than the kind of um omni god you know of like classical mm -hmm. theism um you know but instead within the works of like process thinking i've found things like um panentheism or like sometimes even in like pantheism can be pretty attractive sometimes uh depending on who's spouting it i think elia delio is very convincing when she talks mm -hmm. about it <laughs> um but the kind of panentheistic like panpsychism um 
you know, David Ray Griffin has a really great book called uh, Reenchantment Without Supernaturalism. Mm, so I've heard of it. I'm not, I not. really enjoyed it. And it just, it has a more naturalistic understanding of the divine um, as something that is, you know, kind of inherent and, and ubiquitous um, in and through all things, uh, rather than this like being that's out there somewhere. And then sometimes like, you know, breaks in does a few miracles right. and then fucks yeah. off, you know, like <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, which which also sometimes ends up risking deism. Uh, yes. This, this yes. sort of general approach that like, okay, God exists, but an intervention is kind of this weird problem and, um, you know, brings up a lot of questions about causality and, and stuff like that. And so you risk this sense of like, oh, something created the world, but it's, you know, it just doesn't care anymore to to actually intervene or somehow can't intervene, um, which is different from the the, the can't of process theism. Um, the pro the process God is very involved, um, but is just delimited in its in its uh, in its form and in uh, capacity for power. Um, but yeah, and, and I touched a little bit on that on too, um, sort of thinking my way through all the different approaches to. Um, the divinity question, I call it. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for indulging um, in my little uh, side quest there. <laughs> but the to the the article that you wrote. Um, let's see. The title. What the full title is: Emptiness, Creativity, and Feminist Ecology: An Introduction to Process Buddhism. Um, and what you kind of do in the uh, in your your article here is you engage with. Um, her name was Val uh, Plumwood, and she wrote a book called Feminism and the Mastery of Nature. And um, they kind of critique uh, process thinking and say that, well, it's not really helpful if we're going to talk about um, ecology and, and taking care of uh, the earth and these kind of things, uh, which was interesting at first when I started reading, because a lot of the process stuff that I've found helpful um, is actually in service of the kind of Eco ecological crisis yeah, and it's something i'm sure. passionate about and so anyway you kind of then you know engage um there you know her critiques uh throughout the article and so i don't know um how much or how little you want to say specifically about um her critiques or something like that um but i do um deeply kind of want to um see the practical implications when we do mm -hmm. talk about something like the ecological crisis yeah, um, yeah you know so i'm i'm anywhere you want to go with it um sure it's open <laughs> no i think it's a good um uh, good thing you pointed out that um and you know initially her, her the fact that she's critiquing process um from like a ecological perspective might sound strange because um you know process relational thinkers are, you know, so concerned about um, the environment and ecology and um, are some of the pe deep people with the deepest thoughts about it. Um, but that's exactly why she points them, uh, you know, picks them out. And um, in the article, I also focus on her critique of deep ecology and, um, and, you know, and so the reason I think why she takes them to task is because she really takes them seriously as, you know, potential partners in, um, you know, ameliorating this um, incredible, you know, crisis that we're in right now. Um, and so, you know, she's not picking easy targets, um, you know, and, um, and, it's, and I think that's really 
um, impressive and, and, and powerful um, in the way she does that. And um, she really takes them to task in, in, in certain ways. And her, um, so Val Plumwood's, um, uh, actually, if I take a step back, so the, what I really like about ecofeminism um, in particular, and not just, you know, environmental thinking and not just feminism is that um, on the one hand, feminism, you know, taken at a certain angle, particularly when we think about intersectionality, um, you know, is, is is definitely like a sort of social justice movement and in some ways even a metaphilosophical approach um, kind of like expands beyond itself. It starts to see how its own problems are inextricably entangled with problems of race and class um, and, you know, and now we're adding more stuff, sexuality, um, and ability and, and stuff like that. And, um, and it's really grown in its ability to sort of encompass all of these things, um, within itself. And there's a bit of tension there too. Um, you know, some feminists think that it's becoming too broad and we're losing the specificity of, you know, what the feminist concern is. Um, and um, but some see this expansion as a, as a natural consequence of you know original feminist concerns. Um, so there's that expansive movement within feminism and and the ecological crisis because of its just this totalizing nature is sort of also all encompassing because it implicates so much in terms of like not just how we treat nature, but um, how we treat nature has also implicated how we treat each other and how that's bound up in, you know, legacies of colonialism and and um, sort of uh, unchecked, unchecked industrialism and, and capitalism. And so for me, ecofeminism, um, and I don't want it to be a full stand-in, but I see the potential in, in an ecofeminist approach of being this all-encompassing socio-ecological justice movement um, in, in, in terms of uh, being incredibly practical about, you know, um, experiences um, on the ground in everyday life and how we're all implicated in all of these different ways. Um and um the 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 depth and breadth of this perspective is really shown in um plumwood's uh, book feminism and the mastery of nature where she identifies um what she calls generally calls dualism as being sort of at the root of all of these intersecting concerns and broadly construed um a dualism is uh this not it's not just a sort of abstract entertainment of opposing concepts so that's a part of it but it's this sort of value hierarchy where um and it's funny because in a way there's actually a kind of monism within dualism and maybe we can touch on that um at some point but it's it's not just a sort of dichotomy between um, masculine and feminine, self and other uh, technology um, or civilization and nature, but this this tendency to also uh, or and I left out mind and body is this tendency to sort of privilege one pole over the other within this dualism that um, that produces is both based in but also produces this way of thinking and being that um, simultaneously assumes a certain capacity 
out out in nature, out in the real world, exploits that capacity for the the gain of whoever or whatever is identified with the um the the top that the 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 um superordinate pole in that duality, um, while at the same time not recognizing or not really um, uh, sort of um, reciprocally uh, um, sort of giving back what it takes from that uh, subordinated pole. So, so um, you know, uh, the way in which, um, you know, in, in, in white supremacy, you know, um, white uh, people exploiting the the labor and um, work of uh, black and brown peoples, depending on them for their own existence, their own um, you know uh, project of you know building a civilized society, while denigrating those contributions at the same time and not recognizing the those contributions. Same thing with in, in under patriarchy, the way that men are constantly um, making women um, basically do all the all the work, all the labor, both reproductive labor and domestic labor, um, as to to uh, to function as securing the conditions of their own existence, but uh, but again, not giving back. Um, and the same thing, you know, we can say in, in within capitalism, there's sort of this tendency for capital to, at the same time, depend on labor for the creative power that, that creates the surplus that capital realizes as profit. But because it's profit for the capitalist, it becomes, and, and not the sort of reciprocal relationship with labor, it becomes an exploitative process. And so all to say, and, and, and there's so many other examples we can give too, but this, this general basic pattern is that you have this dualistic contrast, and then one side um, is seen as superordinate um, or more valuable than the other, yet ironically, this whole power structure depends on the relationship between the two. Um, so at the same time that it exploits relationship, it also suppresses or ignores relationship. And for Plumwood, this pattern, this logic is basically at the fundamental root of the ecological crisis, which is also at the root of patriarchy, white supremacy, um, capitalism, and all these different things that we can list. Um, and so she and and so um, in her analysis, she identifies um, two sort of dispositions, which are sort of contradictory in their nature, but actually um, in a strange way united within what she calls the master model, which is the model of reality um, that the masters have have created. Everyone who's on the side of mind and reason and civilization and masculinity and whiteness over the over those who are identified with the body with nature with darkness um with with labor um and and what she identifies um is um these two contrasting things i was talking about is radical ex what she calls radical exclusion and incorporation on the other on the other hand and radical exclusion is this sense of seeing the other as so other, as so different, as so alien that um, they can't but 
be seen as the opposite of the self, of the one. And this is where sort of this process of dehumanization and denigration happens. But then on the other side, there's also incorporation, which is seeing that the other is nothing but a reflection of the self, is seeing the other only in terms of what the self wants, and not seeing the other as anything independent and autonomous in their own sense. And while these almost seem like they would cancel each other out, they're perniciously brought together within the master mode um, um, in order to basically um, exploit um, these others as much as possible. Um, so it's this process of simultaneous process of dependence, but at the same time, not recognizing that dependence. And this is a paradoxical logic that affords the um, the master his, um, you know, and, and his in, in, in almost an abstract way too, um, that affords um, him his whole exploitative process. Um, but the, 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 um, I mean, obviously, all of this is obviously an issue, but the the real, you know, alarming thing about this is that just because you know the master configures things in this paradoxical way, it doesn't mean that that's actually how things work. And so that the and we're seeing this with the ecological crisis. Um, at some point, an annihilation of nature is going to be an annihilation of ourselves, and it's not even at some point. It's like through the process it's already happening we're destroying ourselves as much as we destroy nature and this is what um about plumwood is um you know ringing the alarms for is that yeah this paradoxical um logic of dualism has been running and is intensifying um but it's also spelling doom. This sort of project of complete mastery is never going to happen because um, at some point, once you take away so much from the other that they can't even sustain themselves anymore, then you lose the conditions of your own existence. And so it's basically the suicide mission, um, whether we recognize it or not. Um, and so that's you know, um, the general uh, thing that she's concerned with, uh, what she's extrapolating in a really precise analytical way um, to get, and to give us resources to be able to spot that when that happens and also point towards alternatives. Um, and so, and so Plumwood um, in a way provides some of the resources for, but also, you know, urges us to come up with, and she's very much pluralistic, I think, in this sense. She urges us to come up with different ways of thinking and being that accounts for the limitations, severe limitations of this sort of paradoxical dualistic logic um, in order to save ourselves and, in a way, even save the master from himself as well. Um, and so she takes process and deep ecology to task because they are aligned with her project, but she finds them still somehow uh, falling back in these sort of dualistic tendencies in, in their own ways. And so in, in a very friendly way, honestly, she's trying to, to help them out. And um, and because of the uh, deep resonance between deep ecology and the Buddhist tradition, um, you know, lots of Buddhist um, engaged Buddhists are also would con consider themselves deep ecologists. Um, because of that resonance, I also sort of um, by proxy interpret her interpret interpret her critique of deep ecology as also a critique of certain forms of Buddhism. And then basically um, to 
to to finally end this <laughs> this long explanation, um, I find that um, she does validly criticize process in deep ecology in a particular way. Um, that I think is 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 valid in, in the sense that sometimes process thinkers and spiritual ecologists do do the things that she criticizes them for. And um, what my intervention in this sense is supposed to be is that whatever issues or risks we find within this sort of Buddhistic approach and the process approach can actually be resolved when we bring them together. Because precisely going back to something I mentioned earlier, um, the... Um, we can actually sort of, you know, um, ironic that I'm using this term, we can actually exploit the differences um, of of the both approaches, the deconstructive approach in Buddhism and the reconstructive approach in process to sort of balance each other out in a dynamic way so that they can actually cancel each other's um, problems and so actually form a robust framework precisely of the manner that Val Plumwood is asking us for. Um, and so it's also kind of my convenient way to also um, sort of work my way through establishing something like a process Buddhist synthesis. And um, I should also say that, again, I recognize that um, this is not entirely a novel construction of my own. Um, there, Like I said, there is a, um, a past, a lineage of thinking process and Buddhism together. The um, most important work has been um, by this uh, author, brilliant um, scholar who was unfortunately is not with us um, anymore, Peter Paul Kackel, and in his book, Emptiness and Becoming, which is the first systematic attempt at bringing process and Buddhism together beyond just the sort of dialogues we've had with people like John Cobbin and Masao Aibe. Um, but even then, I found um, his work, while incredibly helpful, sort of schematic and um, still a little bit on the sort of philosophical side. So I wanted to bring and, and imbue this process Buddhist possibility with a um, with a direct practical motivation. And I found ecofeminism to be a perfect one. Um, not only because of the fact that the ecofeminist movement is kind of asking for such a kind of framework, but also because um, I think in the way that um, a process Buddhism as a framework might be incredibly general in a sort of ontology and epistemology way, ecofeminism is also incredibly general, but in a more practical way. And so why not bring all of these together to, to really have this holistic framework that can has the potential to really intervene on a whole number of problems at a whole number of scales. I I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to repeat back to you um <laughs> some of the critique. All right. So make sure that I understand. Um yeah yeah because I think I I actually really love especially as you were just um explaining it I really love uh Plumwood's critique the um how'd you call it the the master's like dualistic model type thing um because to me like in my mind the way that I started to think about it is it almost has this like rejection of the deep interconnectedness and interrelatedness mm -hmm. of things because when you have that kind of dualistic split and like you were saying that I guess the um when then hierarchy is is introduced and you have somebody 
um, you know, oppressing another people group for like slave labor. And then they, you know, don't recognize that without that slave labor, their way of life wouldn't exist either. And so there, that's kind of, I guess, the the paradox, right? But they're, it's like a, a failure to recognize the kind of interconnection. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that I had not heard that um, critique before. And it's like, yes, <laughs> I, uh, I was like, wow, nice. Um, and it's, it, I mean, it, it tied in too, because I have heard critiques of dualism or like specifically Cartesian dualism when mm-hmm. it comes to um, the ecological crisis, just in the way that we've bifurcated nature um, and these kind of things. And I, I find deep resonance um, within, I guess, Plumwood's critique there as well, um, because it still is kind of this dualism bit. But I guess one of the... Um, one of uh, her critiques about, I guess, deep ecology and process, um, if I understood her correctly, is that they have a tendency or they're able to kind of fall into this um, kind of making everything one and in doing so mm. kind of rejecting the um, individuality or something like that, right? It kind of collapses everything without respecting the actual differences, um, this kind of thing. Is that also part of her critique? Yeah, you know, I think you okay. you, you singled out like pretty core element of her, her critique. Okay. And um, in a way, um, she most she starts with her, um, of, of the two, the process one comes earlier. She actually spends a lot of time with deep ecology because she sees deep ecology's failings as actually being a kind of more extreme versions of what she identifies within process. Um, and it's a sense that um, for Plumwood, the, we have to be careful that when we critique dualism, that we're also not critiquing difference. For her, difference is an important is, is a condition of possibility for relationship. If there's not a you and a me in a meaningful sense, there's no relationship. And so she she sees, particularly in deep ecology, this sort of um what she calls this sort of this cosmology of unbounded wholeness as sure we understand she can see the the attractiveness of it because it's really affirming connectivity and relationality. But it does it in a way that kind of undercuts that relationality. If everything is one, then it's kind of almost a uh, cosmic masturbatory relation of one with itself. It's not really, you know, two kind of thing, Um, a difference that actually makes a difference. And um, so for her, it's really important. um, And I don't think she really phrases it this way, but um, it's very important that when we reject dualism, we don't um, eliminate dualism because even that is sort of falling under a dualistic paradigm. Um, we should be able to recognize some level of difference that actually respects aut- meaningful autonomy and um, recognizes that I don't know who you are and I don't know exactly everything you want. And um, and there is something about you that escapes my my. Uh, grasp, but that doesn't mean that we can't, um, you know, share this world together and share the same values and and really enrich each other's experience. And so um, for process and um, her critique of process, it's it's kind of um, 
you know, not super novel in terms of uh, people's general critique of, you know, when people do critique process or even panpsychism, not synonymous, but, you know, very related, it tends to be similar, which is that um, there, there's something about suggesting that um, rocks have minds that uh, sort of uh, um, dilutes the concept of mind to the point of meaninglessness. And and while she does have an um, important concern, and I don't want to dismiss her concern, like I see in the article, which is that um, even if you are, you know, extending you know, subjectivity to everything down to subatomic particles and more strings or whatever. Um, she she questions um, to what extent this is actually an affirmation of true diversity and not just sort of um, charting everything on the same unitary axis of different degrees of complexity. And so that what that ends up being what that amounts to for her is basically saying, well, you're basically just saying humans are still the best. They're the most complex uh, mentally. Sure, we recognize that maybe rocks can have something like minds, but they're. it's almost like they have they could have the same mind we do, but much more rudimentary. And for her, that's actually kind of almost a paternalistic way of, of looking at the universe. Um, and so I, you know, I um, sort of re reproduce some of her criticism in my article. And, um, but then I, I point to how, um, uh, at least as far as Whitehead is concerned, it's not really what he's saying. Um, he, he, um, and, and I pull extensively from process and reality to show that, um, it's not really consciousness that's physical, um, that's ubiquitous. It's, it's feeling. And, um, you know, I'm sure, um, uh, you know, when, um, Val was looking at Whitehead or Whiteheadian, um, Whiteheadian's work, uh, she picked up on that, but it's also easy to sort of, because it's such a benign term, it's easy to sort of miss the technicality, um, of the way the concept, uh, um, plays out in, um, or functions in Whitehead, um, and um, so it's more so that feeling or more precisely this capacity to prehend other actual entities within your own constitution that's more ubiquitous. And there's something about the generality of the concept of prehension and the related um, concept of feeling that I think allows us to extend you know, something we typically think that only we have or only special complex biological organisms have and give it to the whole, not even give it, but recognize that the whole cosmos has it. But without without making the assumption that they actually have experience just like us. And and I and I and I sort of point to how um one, we should not dismiss her concern, but at the same time it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Nonetheless, there is still potentially a risk in, in a process perspective to sort of generalize in a way that, um, you know, you know, approaches things in a paternalistic way of seeing everything as just a simpler version of your own self. Um, and then for deep ecology, the, it's even more intensified because they're more explicit um, with this sense, uh, tend to be more explicit with the sense that like, you know, everything is one and there's one great mind or even um, in a way, even from a Buddhistic point of view, sometimes uh, with that language, you know, de-emphasizing the small self or the small mind and focusing on this idea of the big self or the big mind. Um, 
And sometimes, you know, I know there's deep ecologists who, you know, might see the concept of Gaia as more of a metaphor and seeing it more of a sort of earth system sense. Uh, but there's also a way to approach it as um, in a reified way where there's almost like our it's almost like our individuality is just a illusory fragmentation of what's the real mind, which is this bigger mind. And you can extend that cosmically. And for her, um, there's this subtle value hierarchy there as well that is dualistic ultimately. And so while she, and again, like I said, she takes them to task, not because they're easy targets, but because they're hard targets who are aligned with their project, pointing to how, um, in a way, they fail to really meet their own standards, um, depending on how you interpret it, depending on how they express themselves. Um, and there's, um, she recognizes in both that they're, you know, and specifically she says with process that a more, a less totalizing version of process um, can be allies to the eco-feminist cause. Um, so, yeah, so that's basically... Um, generally the gist of her 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 beef with the process and and deep ecology and by proxy of buddhism and um and yeah and then i show how um there are you know different ways of really understanding um either side that don't fully fit into her her critique um but but you know her critiques notwithstanding um we can also uh bring them you know, if there's still this this uh, fear of this risk of falling, lapsing into dualism, why not bring process and this more spiritual Buddhist approach together and really have a robust way of um, uh, thinking about um, this different approach to to self and other that is actually reciprocitous and is non-dual while still recognizing the importance of real differences. Um and I think um, you know it's it's very convenient that process is reconstructive in its approach and Buddhism is deconstructive because then they can kind of keep each other in check. Um, um, and 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 I go a little bit in further in in the essay, um, sort of extracting um, what I call a two general ultimate principles that um, are each one represented by either process or Buddhism, but in a way. Both are in in either one, um, and that's the the principle of open emptiness and the principle of inclusive transcendence. Um, and um, I don't know if you have some thoughts about that um, uh, before we get any more deep in in these two principles. No, I think um, I mean some yeah. Sorry, I was flipping to the to the bits where you um, spoke about your two your two principles, but just some things that came to mind when you were thinking the um like I, the critique of panpsychism um i think is solid and i tend to prefer to use the phrase like pan experientialism because i think that can help kind of get at the um that feeling aspect that you were talking yeah, about yeah. experience um, is a little bit more general than uh you know psyche which right can be a loaded term yeah yeah like instead of saying like Oh, that rock, you know, if I like kick my, that rock, the rock is now sad because I was a jerk to the rock. I was like, well, no, the, the, it has, the, I don't know. It has like experience. As I understand it, it's like the rock has experience or the things that make up the rock has experience, but it's not to the same extent as it's not the same kind of experience. We don't want to assume in an anthropocentric way that human consciousness 
is the same for everything that also has right. experience. That's kind of the idea, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Everything doesn't have a diluted version of what we have, but right. um, there, and um, yeah, and actually, someone else actually sort of critiques Val's work um, in mm. in a similar in a similar way, actually, um, in an ironic way. So she talks about um, her alternative concept, which is intentionality, and she sees that everything is endowed with intentionality. And um, someone critiques her in almost a similar way, too, in terms of like, well, if everything, if, um, how do I say, um, it's like she says everything is intentional, but still, but not in this, on the same axis, on the, on the same sort of kind. Um, someone uh, critiques her in the sense that she, she has sort of a contradictory approach to it. And um, I can't recapitulate that too much right now, because it's like a kind of, uh, a complicated argument that's actually in the longer version of my um, essay. So any listeners, um, hopefully by the time you listen to this, uh, I have put out the longer version on, on my on my website and you can read that. But um, but yeah, there, there seems to be um, even, you know, Plumwood faces this according to this other author that anytime you sort of extend this sort of almost subjectivity or mentality to everything, you run across this problem of like, how do we affirm that um, the ubiquity of this property um, without rendering it anthropocentric, without rendering it in terms of ourselves. Because if it's, um, if you render it too much in terms of ourselves and we're not really extending anything, we're, um, we're just sort of like um, doing this incorporation move of just seeing everything in terms of ourselves. Um, but if we really emphasize that they have it, but it's it's so different from human consciousness that we can't think about it. Then it's like then how do you even know you they have it? Um, and that is that is some of, something of an issue um, found anytime you extend that kind of property to everything. And I find Buddhism to actually be pretty helpful in this sense, in the sense that um, Buddhism understands that all concepts are provisional and and uh, dependent on a sort of functional. Uh, for a functional pragmatic purpose. And beyond that purpose, those concepts are not really super meaningful. So um, to some extent, we don't have to literally think that everything experiences, but if, 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 but if this is a productive way of looking at the world that actually produces effects, which are, you know, for the general well-being of every, everyone on the planet, everyone on in the cosmos, then, you know, that's as good and as true as that concept can be. It doesn't have to be metaphysically absolutely true. Yeah, that is, um, that is helpful. And I like the, the pragmatic aspect of things too. I find, um, myself, I mean, even too, when it comes to like my own, like theological musings, um, really seeking out like the pragmatic aspect of things like okay i have this cool concept but does it make the world better or worse <laughs> and um right. you know that kind of thing um but yeah does so it work gets... does it make my own life worth yeah you know absolutely continuing to live you know it's like how how does it affect my own life too so yeah mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um and i guess the the other thing that i thought about um I'd be curious to to get your take whenever I try to think of like, I guess the more like holistic understanding or the interconnectedness, something like that of all things, um, how I try to balance that 
without kind of just collapsing everything mm-hmm. in on itself, but still recognizing genuine difference is I want to talk about like, okay, so the whole, like I, Josh, don't know myself outside of my relationship and interconnectedness with the whole in the same way that if I were to like get pulled out of the hole, the whole no longer knows itself in a way because like an aspect does that make sense and like that's how i kind of like try to conceptualize it in my mind i don't know if it's actually helpful or not but it's like kind of that that bit no yeah yeah Yeah, that that makes sense and and in a way it definitely resonates with buddhist understanding a little bit in the sense that um the very concepts of whole and part are mutually implicated like what is a whole but um you know a composition of parts and what is a part but a component of a whole. And so in a way you can't really, and maybe something of a whole would be there without you, but it would be a different whole. And it would be, it would not be the same whole that we're talking about. And even then, um, at, at a certain point, um, we, we recognize that um, holes aren't just given to us, you know, preconceptually. They, they, they arise out of a particular kind of perspective that we take with its own conceptual uh, yeah, frameworks and filters, um, uh, and sort of boundary delineation that doesn't exist out there independent of what we're doing. Um, and so, and so especially if we think about this cosmic whole, it becomes a little bit too imaginative or we're not actually, you know, it becomes a thought, but are we actually looking at the extents of it? Are we actually beholding it in a direct perception, for example? And so it becomes a little abstract. I mean, you can kind of, um, you know, there's definitely this implication that, um, you know, if everything that we experience is dependent on everything else, then then naturally you would think that everything is this interdependent whole. Um, but from a Buddhist perspective, we might, you know, perhaps from a pragmatic perspective, you might question how important is it to, to think about it in terms of this total whole and not just the network of interdependence that is pragmatically uh, important and proximate to what you're doing right now. You know, there, and, you know, and like, sure, I'm like, you know, sure, what's happening in um, Antarctica right now is, is you know, uh, intrinsically connected to what we're doing right now in some incredibly thin line, but we can bracket that out. It doesn't really, ha- it doesn't, it's not really that important. So, really, um, again, that this this um, emphasis on pragmatism, uh, pragmatics, and the practice. Practicality is important um, to constrain our our speculative um, tendencies. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. That's um, that's helpful. Um, so, in regard then to kind of the I guess the conclusioning aspect of your article, you do as you mentioned, you bring in these two um, kind of ideas. Uh, the open emptiness and inclusive transcendence. Um, and so I'm curious how they, you know, kind of um, play into the the critiques of uh, that Plumwood makes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, 
So the principles of open emptiness and inclusive transcendence. Um, so in conversation, you really don't see this, but um, the the way I actually write it out, I think it's um, says a little bit about them as well. Um, so it's open slash empty. So um, so what I'm pointing to here, basically what this is is um, um, the the term in Sanskrit is sunyata or or sunya, which is um, a critical um, sort of concept in in Mahayana Buddhism particularly, but is, you know, very much implicit in, um, in the, uh, you know, uh, foundational Buddhism as well, which is um, basically this idea, um, whether it's in Madhyamaka philosophy or Yogacara, is this idea that things are, are, are not really what we uh, mentally project them to be. Uh, and what we tend to mentally project them to be are these stable, fixed, independent, and intrinsically existent entities that might be in relation with other things, but are principally, you know, um, as self-identical in themselves and self-sufficient. And so we, either through intellectual analysis or through actual meditative practice, we come to know that, um, you know, intimately and directly, we see that things that we habitually take to exist independently and intrinsically are actually cannot exist without their being relationally bound with other things. And more often than not, um, bound with the things that we think are opposed to them. Um, they're actually in, intrinsically intertwined. Um, and empty, and, and so the reason why I say open slash empty is because these are actually two different ways you can translate emptiness, uh, sunyata. And emptiness has become the... Um, you know, almost standard, you know, approach to translating um, sunyata in English, but sometimes people use the term void. Um, I don't like void because we immediately think about uh, sort of a substantial nothingness, um, which is not really what um, uh, sunyata is referring to. It's not point, it's not trading presence for absence. Um, it's simply pointing to how what you thought was there, that is not there. So it's empty of whatever you thought was actually there. Um, not that there's nothing there at all. Um, that would be a philosophical, uh, almost speculative um, assertion that is not the point of um, of this sort of analysis that brings, or, or analysis or meditation that brings you to that realization. Um, but so, so the emptiness is a sort of refers to this side where um, when you go looking for the self or when you go looking for this um, the thing that you thought was there is not actually there, um, you're you're left empty-handed in a way, we can say. Um, uh, you you come back without the thing in that you're looking for. So there's a sort of um, negative tendency there, negative in the sense of lack. Um, but at the same time, and some scholar and there have been some scholars who've convincingly convincingly have um, argued that in um, some of the ways in which Nagarjuna, um, you know, a great um, Mahayana Madhyamaka thinker, um, who is kind of like my big representative, um, if if Whitehead is the representative for process, Nagarjuna is, is mine for the Buddhist side, um, that he uses the term sunya in a much more uh, positive way, but not positive in a way that makes it um, something substantial again, um, but in a sense of uh, openness, a sense of um, sort of this uh, spaciousness where where you 
where you thought that there was something there taking up space, there's actually this profound um, openness, um, where which is pregnant with possibility, with with immense potential. And um, this this uh, sort of um, symbolism of the sky is really um, important here because it also shows up a lot in Vajrayana and in Dzogchen too, as um, in 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 a more positive approach to to emptiness, as sort of this a vast boundless spaciousness that is is imminent with so much potential, um, but not necessarily. Uh, delimited in any particular way um, that we might assume it to be, and so I, I, I so instead of calling it the principle of emptiness, um, you know, again to to sort of this my my knack to want to you know find balance a dynamic balance, um, I call it open emptiness to point to these two different ways of approaching shunyata, which is um, at the same time, um, a vast openness pregnant with possibility, but also a vacuity of a particular kind of fixation um, about being or non-being that um, is actually not there. And for me, it's really important to have both of those so that we don't veer off into either a positive or a negative bias with this, this understanding, this principle. So, so that's the principle of open emptiness. Um, basically, nothing exists independently and intrinsically. Everything arises out of interdependent relation with other things. Um, and this is not even to say, and you know, at a certain level, you can go really deep with this and, and point to how, well, if there's no thing without the relations, then there's not even relations because there's no thing to be in relation. But when we do... But but because we're not denying things existing, we're just denying that they exist in a particular way. There is something like relation, of course. Um, but but this is just to point out that we can't reify relations as well. It's not like the relationship between the two things is somehow more real than the two things. Um, um, even even the thing, the entity and the relation, or the relata and the relation, um, they're both mutually intertwined as well. Um, so that's the principle of open emptiness. So the principle of inclusive transcendence. So that's written with um, inclusive um, and uh, with a dash uh, inclusive dash um, transcendence, a kind of a kind of conjunction of these two terms. So whereas open emptiness is like sort of pointing to with the slash is pointing to two. Um, sort of a mutually implicated complementary ways of understanding this. Um, uh, this principle with inclusive transcendence um, with the dash between inclusive and transcendence is pointing to this sort of um, sort of conjunction of these two um, aspects um, of this principle, which is the inclusive part, which is um, you know, pointing to eminence and uh, transcendence, which pointed to transcendence. And um, I find that um, Whitehead's, um, you know, famous basic formulation that many become one and are increased by one. I mean, that's the most simple, but obviously also, you know, in its own way, really complex way of explaining the um, principle of inclusive transcendence, which is that um, there is a process of interrelated things coming into a coalescence and including each other as parts of their own life. Um, yet the 
but that also gives gives rise to something that has a life of its own that that transcends being completely reduced to those relationships and that's basically creativity creativity is not just the, the sum of things being um put together but also in coalescing together it gives birth to something new um something new in its own right. Um, and that's the principle of inclusive transcendence. And for me, um, Buddhism um, almost predomin predominantly gives emphasis to the principle of open emptiness, while its process gives predominant emphasis to the principle of inclusive transcendence. But I also point to how, in a way, in a way, both of these principles are open empty meaning that they don't exist independently without each other. And precisely because of that, both principles are also component parts of a process of inclusive transcendence that transcends them both. And um, what I mean by that is that for, for the principle of open emptiness to apply, apply, you have to, for them to actually be practical, um, for it to be a practical concept, you have to actually notice that what you thought was there is not there, that there's something more to what's happening than your fixation. But that's something more. Where is that coming from? And that's coming from the creative process of inclusive transcendence that actually gives genesis to the manifold complexity of experience that we have moment to moment. And in a way, open emptiness presupposes without naming, because um, open emptiness doesn't name anything, it just sees that um, what you thought was there is actually not there. Um, it presupposes the, the the operation of inclusive transcendence to to provision this field in which we can actually investigate that oh there's more happening than what I'm habitually assuming to happen. But at the same time, inclusive transcendence also presupposes open emptiness because it's because things are not reducible to what I think they are, that things are pregnant with possibilities that lend itself to genuine novelty. Because if everything existed the way I thought it existed, and there was nothing more to that, there's no real novelty. There's only just a recombination of the same, which is not novelty. And so it's because things are more than what they appear that, that the process of inclusive transcendence can actually give um, a genetic rise to genuine novelty and creativity. And so in that sense, they're, they're both mutually implicated. So even the principle of open emptiness and the principle of inclusive transcendence are open empty in that sense. But they're also both component parts of the process of inclusive transcendence in the sense that at the end of the day, these are names of conceptual principles that are helping us um, sort of um, interact with the world in a particular way, but they themselves are not entities or essences or processes. They're just sort of general principles. So in a sense, they're kind of provisional. And so they form component parts of a greater practical pragmatic um, function that's not reducible to just these concepts. So all to say that um, it's a fancy way of saying these are just these are just concepts, and they refer to something meaningful, but they don't stand alone. They're not referring to 
ultimate transcendent, um, you know, static principles, um, but they are uh, metaphysical principles that when you when you look at reality, you will find them. But um, they're not; they don't exist independently of what they're exemplifying. Um, and so, when, the way to really live their truth is to, um, in a way, see what they're pointing to what they're pointing to and, and living that and, and that living that is itself the transcend inclusively transcending process that includes the principle of open emptiness and inclusive transcendence. And so um, again, sort of pointing to um, something we said earlier uh, about how in order to think process and Buddhism together, you kind of have to think in a process Buddhist way. So I find that, um, in order to think these two principles, you kind of also have to think about them with them to really understand them and in, in the full depth and breadth of their significance. Yes, I love it. <laughs> and the the yeah, I it, hmm. The, I guess the like I don't know. The, I'm trying to think of a way to like be like, okay, so now if I walk out of this room, um, you know, pragmatically, what is this um, going to look like? I guess just the, the kind of recognition that um, if we're talking about like the ecological crisis, that um, the, uh, I don't know, like the trees outside or something are more than they appear. They're not just our resources to like mm -hmm. cut up and make into paper or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And the cows aren't just, you know, something to be exploited for milk, et cetera. Um, and so like recognizing that and the kind of interconnectedness of all of those things, we can then live in such a way as if that is true. Um, and that kind of lends itself nicely then to, um, you know, making steps and, uh, you know, putting a dent in the ecological crisis <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I don't know, but you also, you, I like this sentence you have um, towards the end where you kind of um, bring this together and you, you tie that master concept back in. And you oh, said right. that the master. Oh, you did ask me about um, how this connects to uh, Plumwood's critique, but. No, but you're good. You nailed it. The, the, um, you kind of bring in, you say like the master only has one of two options, enlightenment or extinction either one of which spells out the complete cessation of who he thought he really was and a return to the conditions that made his life possible. Um, I, yeah, I, that's one of my, my highlighted lines. And um, well, yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed that as a kind of a, a way to, to bring it all back together. Um, yeah. There's yeah. a, there's a <laughs> sense in which either principle um, and again, pointing sort of, pointing to the relative self-sufficiency of either process or Buddhism, um, mm -hmm. either one of these principles, if if the master in this sort of general way that we're thinking about it, if the master really recognized either principle, it's a challenge to you know his operative assumptions. If he right. if he recognizes open emptiness, then he'll then he'll see that there's always an access to how he determines the other that can never be controlled by him. And and in a way, he kind of deep down knows that, which is why the frenzy to control is there to begin with. Um, but also, if he recognizes inclusive transcendence to see that he's actually not the top dog and the reason why everything is the way it is, but 
he's actually a dependent in a, in a greater community for his own life. I mean, either one of these are challenges, but when you bring them both together, um, there really is no escaping um, the, the, uh, the fact that how the master conceives of himself or itself, um, you know, is, is a total fabrication and an illusion. And, but at the same time is also bringing not just the end of the other, but at the end of him, his own self. And so, um, if he's given the choice of either extinction, which is this sort of suicide mission of bringing everything down with him, or enlightenment, which is to, you know, recognizing living practice, the truth of these two principles, either one um, is an end to his reign as a master, but on, and only one of them does he get to keep living with us. Um, and so that's sort of the, 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 the ultimate choice that has to be made there. Hmm. Yeah, and it just, it, it reminds me and brings back in a phrase that you said earlier, um, that I wrote down really like, you said how we treat nature is how we treat each other. Um mm. And, you know, or that kind of thing um, really ties in. And it it just, I don't know, I, I bring up this idea a lot on the on the podcast and listeners are probably like, dude, stop saying this. It's annoying. But um, it reminds me of this idea of like the kind of like this myth of separation that mm-hmm. gives rise to um, basically this, like what we talked about in this conversation, where if I believe that I am separate from you, then I can be racist, I can be dehumanizing, I can commit acts of violence against you, etc. Um, if I believe I'm separate from nature, then ecological crisis. Um, if mm-hmm. I believe I'm separate um, from like the divine, that creates things like tribalism and mm-hmm. you know whatever. And if I believe I'm separate from myself, um, I mean, there's all sorts of ramifications for that. And so... Uh, I think this all kind of plays nicely with this i this idea and ties into that understanding of um, what I do uh, to you, I do to myself, what I do, mm-hmm. you know, to my dog, uh, I do to myself, my cat, whatever. Um, all it just all seems to kind of come full circle and and plan nicely. So yeah, yeah, I, I like it. that you you um you mentioned separation because the the term that Plumwood uses um as a kind of um unity of hyper of um radical exclusion and incorporation is just the general concept of hyper separation, mm-hmm. um and that's the term she uses the hyper separation this the sense of thinking you and I are are intrinsically separate to some to some extent within that um, relation. There's these two poles of um, radical exclusion. Oh, you're so different from me. I don't even know you. Or incorporation, which is that, well, you're nothing but a figment of my own uh, projection, of my own of, of my own mind. And again, which seems like opposed concepts that would neutralize each other, but are kind of um, conveniently used um one or the other, depending on whatever is convenient for for me to get what I want. Um, basically, um, either either I, um, you know, uh, reject your you know humanity and um, or, or or your value, and therefore excuse myself of um, reciprocity and actually like you know valuing you and and con- contributing back to you, um, or I just see you as a reflection of myself. Therefore, you're part of my project and not your own. Yeah, and finding that, uh, 
I guess part of the point of our whole conversation is not falling into either one of the extremes. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but recognizing them as such. So I don't know. I I had a lot of fun uh, with this conversation. Hopefully <laughs> you had fun as well. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate this opportunity you gave me to to um for the most part you know giving a voice to to all these great thinkers who i'm pulling from um mm. plumwood and and um everyone who i mentioned in the article and uh, i mean of course these are big names who <laughs> don't need me to give a voice but um you know i appreciate you allowing me allowing them to filter through me in this way yeah ab- absolutely it's um it's been it's been a pleasure i uh, like I told you, I've, I read your article a couple times and um, I'm still learning uh, and I'm an armchair philosopher at best. And so I appreciate your willingness to come on and um, talk and answer probably what were some uh, silly questions. Uh, oh, no, they're, and, they're great questions. <laughs> and help me fill, help fill me in. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to the, the larger um, version of this and also to continue following uh, the work that you're doing and um, since you're close by, then maybe our paths will cross uh, in person as yeah, well. Yeah, for sure. So, sweet. Well, where um, where would you like me to point people? I know you have a website. Um, yeah. So my my website slash blog, um, which has a section for uh, publications, um, um, which I, where I'm going to was well, I guess this one I might make a separate one for a. Uh, um, essay. So I've been mostly posting like um, a lot of like blog posts and stuff, but I've been slowly working on big essays like this one. Um, so there'll be an essay section, um, hopefully in a week or two, because I'm, I'm very close um, on my, my website, hollowpoesis.com. Um, so uh, even, even Poesis still, um, I have a hard time thinking about how to spell that. Um, I wish I thought of it a, 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 an easier word, but it, it fits for um, reasons. But that's H-O-L-O dash P-O-I-E-S-I-S dot com. And Holopoiesis is its own big concept that I'm working on, but that's maybe a conversation for another time. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's where the expanded version of my... Um, Process Buddhism essay is going to be with a section that's not in the short version, um, which is uh, deals with the question of divinity, um, uh, which I'm really excited about to share. Sweet, good deal. Well, I'll be sure to uh, to link that in the show notes for people to to find easily. Um, and yeah, again, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. And thank you uh, listeners, thank you guys for hanging out. And uh, as always, go in peace.